Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. This is probably the best joke I could come up with right now. But, uh, hey, have you heard about that fire over at the shoe factory this morning? Oof, it's a real tragedy. 200 souls were lost. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from Nick Krill of the Spinto Band. Yeah. That'll help break the ice. Later, we'll learn stuff we didn't know about Lara Dern, star of the HBO series Enlightened. This week, she was nominated for an Emmy Award. Nice. Also coming up, singer-provocateur Billy Bragg gives you etiquette advice, and They Might Be Giants list their favorite bite-sized works of art. And if this all sounds familiar, that's because this is a rebroadcast of one of our favorite episodes. So cast your mind back to March when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Obama's choice to lead the CIA, John Brennan, has been confirmed by the Senate. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez died today. A day for the history books, the stock market closing at an all-time high. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Rehan Harmansi, deputy editor at the food magazine Modern Farmer. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Good news if you guys are traveling in Europe this summer because IKEA is about to open up a hotel chain. Wow. Really? So you're yeah. going to have to like assemble your own room and building maybe? You have like an extra shower part or something? Yeah. <laughs> Where does this go? Very tiny tools. Yeah. Uh, no, Alan no. They're, they're partnering with Marriott. Okay. So it's not going to be totally DIY. Wait, I mean, is there really a demand for, you know, hotels made entirely out of particle board? Is it, why are they doing <laughs> well, this? Well, apparently in Europe, the budget hotel sphere is not as well served as it could be. So Ikea and Marriott making this new new hotel chain called Moxie. Oh, um, I like the name. I, I thought it was going to be called like Urgelbloch yeah. or something like that. <laughs> Jaglocken. When Moxie, yeah, I actually no, understand. No, no, just, just Moxie. Is there an umlaut yeah. over the O in Moxie? <laughs> under. It's under the O. <laughs> Crazy. Um, That's Ikea. Yeah, apparently it's going to have features like USB ports near the beds. Does it say anything about ice buckets filled with Swedish meatballs? Yeah. <laughs> Horse meatballs. Oh. I know. This could not be coming at a worse time for them advertising-wise, right? Yeah. I mean, like, or maybe this is a good thing. It'll distract people from the horse meat and meatballs story. So basically, there are going to be these rooms filled with IKEA furniture. Very small, I'm guessing. Sounds like every other room in Europe. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well done, Moxie. I'd pay 100 euros for that. Ray Hunter, Mancy, thanks for the small talk. Thank you so much, guys. And now, time to assemble cocktails. Yes, or as we call it, Kirk Tollin. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's a swim team doing laps in a pool full of booze. I, I fear for their health, that swim team. <laughs> First, the history part. This week back in 1961, Ivan Ivanovich, the Soviet Union's first cosmonaut, blasted off for outer space. Now, the folks at your dinner party might insist Yuri Gagarin's the first cosmonaut. Yeah. Thanks to Michelle Philippi, you're about to know better. Before Yuri Gagarin piloted the first manned mission into space, the Soviet Union launched the first mannequined mission. See, Soviet engineers wanted to be sure the rocket Yuri would be flying actually, you know, worked. So, for the test flights, a state-of-the-art dummy stood in for Yuri. His creators named him Ivan Ivanovich, the Russian equivalent of John Doe. 
Yvonne looked like the real deal. He wore the same pressure suit Yuri would. He had lifelike skin, eyebrows, and eyelashes. In fact, engineers worried he might be a little too realistic. Yvonne would ultimately be ejected from the rocket, parachuting to Earth. What if a peasant found him and mistook him for an actual dead cosmonaut? Or maybe an alien? So they stuck a big sign on his face. It read Maquette, Russian for dummy. Yvonne was less lifelike on his second ride into space. Because to test the rocket's communications, he was rigged with a sound system that blasted choir music. Also, just to confuse any Westerners picking up the broadcast via radio, the dummy periodically babbled a recorded recipe for cabbage soup. Still, Yvonne caused at least one moment of confusion. After test flight two, he and the rocket landed near a rural town. When officials arrived to survey the site, villagers were outraged. No one seemed to be helping the poor, injured spaceman lying in the snow. They finally chilled out when one of the town's elders was allowed to touch Yvonne's rubber face. Yvonne made it unscathed through all his missions, paving the way for Gagarin's historic flight a few weeks later. But while Yuri got put on stamps and was hailed as a hero, Yvonne went into storage. He didn't get his due till the 90s, when the Ross Perot Foundation bought him for close to 200 grand and put him on display at the Smithsonian. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze to go along with it. We are joined by Peter Mitchell. He is the owner of Leon's Lounge, which is in Houston, Texas, home of the Center for Human Spaceflight Training and lots of other uh, NASA operations. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. What cocktail did this story of the mannequin inspire you to create? I made a drink called the Ivan Splash, as in Splash Down. All right. And Ivan, as in Ivan Ivanovich. Right. So, so Peter, tell me what's in your cocktail. Well, it has an ounce and three quarters of uh, Stolichnaya vodka. Sounds appropriate, of course. A little Russian vodka. Go ahead. Uh, An ounce and a half of fresh squeezed lemon juice. Okay. An ounce of simple syrup. And we shake that with ice vigorously. Just like Ivan was probably shaking vigorously as he was returning to the atmosphere. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Um, we shake it vigorously and we strain it into a 16-ounce tulip glass that's filled with ice. And we top it with a uh, Belgian beer that's called uh, Mannequin Oh, interesting. So the Mannequin is that famous statue in Brussels, right, of the little boy who is relieving himself, if I recall, correct? That's right, yes. <laughs> and is that just a pun, I guess, the, the Mannequin, the Mannequin? Is that what inspires that embellishment? Yeah, well, we, we, we're always kind of trying to come up with interesting uh, beer cocktails, and um, yeah, I figured with the Mannequin that would be that would be apropos. And so you, this bar has been around for a long time. Do any people from the NASA community or have any astronauts stopped by? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's all kinds of NASA people in Houston, so. So, yeah, we, we have NASA people coming in all the time. Do they have, like, a better, like a bigger capacity for drink? I'm just wondering if somehow the zero-gravity training kind of helps them or hurts them when it comes to putting away some cocktails. <laughs> well, they come in all shapes and sizes, I suppose, is the way to put it. Um, you know, they tend to be sort of brainiac, so I, I guess they, uh, they keep it together better than most. All right, so what you're saying is they're not dummies. That's, that's right. 
So Rico, I love that Ivan played a tape of a cabbage soup recipe. It is a beautiful detail. <laughs> I wonder if you can go to the Smithsonian and get the recipe. That's true. I, I don't know though, because it was the Cold War. So it could actually be encrypted launch codes, you know, for all we know. <laughs> That's right. Or just a recipe with, you know, cyanide in it. Yeah. Stuff. Why is there so much uranium in this? <laughs> Folks, you can find all of our recipes, for cocktails that is, yeah. on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person or persons list some interesting things. And this week, our guests are Grammy-winning pop duo They Might Be Giants. They've been turning out catchy, smart tunes since 1986 for both adults and on several albums for kids. Here they are to tell us about their 16th album and to speed through a list. Hi, this is John Linnell of They Might Be Giants. And this is John Flansberg. And we are here to promote our album, Nanobots. The album has 25 songs in 45 minutes, and in celebration of that idea, we are here to present some other very short pieces of creative work. When we were uh, given the assignment to present some short things that we enjoyed, I, I thought of William Carlos Williams' poem, This Is Just to Say, which I think of as William Carlos Williams' famous poem. This is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. I'm going to follow that up with a second William Carlos Williams poem. Cake topping um, me. That's right. Is that an expression? I'm, I'm yes. aware of cake topping. Yes. In other words, someone does something and then you... you with yeah. the icing on, yes. so to speak. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, this is um, this is a poem that I actually memorized once again um, with the cake topping. Yes, not enough. Yes. Not enough. Yes. Just just to to love a William Carlos Williams. Yes. Here it is. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. I think the reason why I can remember the entire William Carlos Williams poem is because it is indeed so short. But I think my mother, I believe my mother wrote an entire sort of thesis paper about that poem. That might be the other reason why I'm remembering it. And it was a very long paper about, you know, something like six lines of poetry. So that, that, that's sort of an impressive fact in itself. Next up, we have the song Propaganda by the band Sparks. For people who are not familiar with Sparks, they were uh, a band that was originally from L.A. They had chart success in the U.K. with the glam movement in the mid-'70s. They were a very startling group in, in almost every way. My partner, Mr. John Flansberg, put on the album. As I recall, the weirdest thing about it was it sounded like there were people in the room with us. It sounded so realistic that I actually jumped out of my skin. The song is only 23 seconds long. Hello, soldier boy, oh boy, she's spewing out the propaganda. Propaganda. Might makes right that you are wrong. You're right to fight the propaganda. 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 Come to our side, she does say. Come on over, she does say. When I don't need more competition for her affection, you should fight on, fight on over there. 23 seconds long. Solid gold. <laughs> This is a track from an album called The Residents Commercial Album. The Residents were an experimental band that started in the early 70s. Early 70s. 60s. They did truly unusual homemade music. Uh, the identity of the band members was never revealed, and it, it, it's possible that there really was only one guy doing the whole thing. They are shrouded in mystery, The Residents, 
They appear in public with gigantic eyeballs for heads with top hats. And one of the albums they made was an entire album of songs, each song only one minute in length, called the commercial album. And I think the idea of it is that, that they were supposed to be paid advertising was going to be on the radio. In other words, they, they would pay a radio station to play their minute-long song as a commercial, but it, was, of course, was undistinguishable from the programming. So to wrap things up, we'll end things fittingly with a very short song off our brand new album, Nanobots. This song is called Hive Mind. It's six, it's six seconds long. It's sexy. It's six seconds long. <laughs> You want to say it again? Should I do I, that? I that Should, I do that? Should I do that whole Just thing? Just say the, the end again. Okay. It's six seconds long. God, that's hard to say. It is all of six seconds. Hive mind. Hive mind. Ta-da. There you go. John Flansberg and John Linnell, a.k.a. They Might Be Giants. Their album Nanobots came out this week. 25 songs in 45 minutes. Move fast to catch them live because I hear they're going to tour the whole country in like five hours. <laughs> that took longer than the song, you sang that. Yeah. Enrico, fun fact, the band actually won a Grammy for their theme song to Malcolm in the Middle. Of course. And That's at about true. 30 seconds, they're pretty sure it's the shortest song ever to win. That is interesting. So is that is their trophy also short? <laughs> yeah. It's very tiny. It looks like a Monopoly piece. It's fun. All right, folks, <laughs> we're going to take a break. Coming up, actor Laura Dern meets Scott Bayo when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. You are listening to an encore presentation of a show that originally aired back in March. Coming up, we find out if pre-made cocktails are still cocktails. Mm. Indie musician Tracy Thorne tells us about the time she found her voice. And British folk punker Billy Bragg answers your etiquette questions. But first, it is time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and it's acclaimed actor Lara Dern. She's known for starring in movies like Jurassic Park, Citizen Ruth, and David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Also Wild at Heart. Let's not forget. Personal favorite. Sure. Great one. This week she was nominated for an Emmy Award for her latest role, Amy Jellico, on HBO's Enlightened. Lara created the show with Mike White, who also co-stars. Her character Amy is an executive who has a nervous breakdown at work and attends rehab, where she embraces a new age philosophy, a philosophy that leads her to become a corporate whistleblower. Mm. Lara has described her character as a cross between Lucille Ball and the fictional labor activist Norma Ray. When I met with her in March, I asked her to explain. That was the pitch, if you will. You know, what if Lucy became Norma Ray? What if that was the person who would be the whistleblower who would actually get in the streets and be mad as hell and not going to take it anymore? I mean, Mike and I's conversations started in and around the end of the Bush administration, post 9-11, us going to Iraq, and there was a lot of cultural apathy and a lot of questions about what does it take to get Americans riled up enough that they'll actually use their voice. Maybe it takes someone who feels everything in such an enormous way and is without boundaries to be willing to throw everything away to just tell the truth, point out injustice. So Amy's truth-telling is part of what makes the show so riveting because uh, sometimes she tells uncomfortable truths. Sometimes she tells the truth when people shouldn't tell the truth. You know, she'll say things without any social grace. Um, is it hard as an actor to play a character that the audience sometimes, well, as one critic put it, sometimes wants to cheer for and sometimes wants to slap? It's 
wonderfully challenging and in ways incredibly easy because it's without apology. It's without veils. So, you know, to play someone who's so completely herself is an incredible freedom as an actor. Hmm. You're not self-absorbed. As a fan of Amy, um, which I have to be. Um, do you have to be a fan of the people you play? Yeah. I, for me, I do. That's my way in. One way of saying it is being a fan of the character you're playing, but it's finding the motivation behind this person, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, to play an adorable woman who says it just right and the boys are enchanted and everybody just wants to be part of her story and things are going her way is not that interesting to me. But someone being so genuine that it, it repels people is fascinating. Because why? Why are we repelled by the very thing we say as a quality we wish more people had? That is really interesting art to me. You still want to go through with this? Of course. I just don't want to jeopardize everything because you're pissed about your life. I am not pissed about my life. You're living at home with your mom. Your husband's in rehab. You're stuck down in the basement with the losers. Maybe I'm a little pissed, but that has nothing to do with this. And just because we're in the basement doesn't mean we don't get to have a voice. So the show's called Enlightened partially because Amy considers herself enlightened. You know, she's always reading self-help books. She meditates. She espouses this positive life view that is kind of part Buddhist, part New Agey. And we, we all know people like her. Since she isn't always portrayed in the best light, I'm wondering about what kind of feedback you've received from the kind of self-help New Age crowd. Uh, you know, I haven't heard directly from anyone who doesn't get a kick out of it. I think Mike and I have shared the experience of walking by a yoga class as it's coming out. And it's sort of like being at a paleontologist convention having just released Jurassic Park. It's like, you know, oh my God, I am so Amy and I just feel like... They're just so excited to see you. They're just so excited to see me or Mike. One of our favorite memories was because we were at a kind of local Starbucks near um, an epicenter of yoga and there was a woman coming out of yoga, really centered, really ready to affect change. And as she peeled out, someone, you know, sort of tried to cut her off as she kind of got into the roadway and she went insane. And it was just so perfect because it just, for me, that is Amy. It's like, you know, life is moment to moment and we just are as good as the moment we're in and then we fall off and we have to find our way back. All right. Well, we have two standard questions that we ask all of our guests. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Probably. Tell, tell us a funny story that happened when you were working on Blue Velvet. That is probably the most common question that I think actors fumble over. Because then you have to inorganically come up with the hilarious story. The perfect anecdote. For the talk show that takes, you know, like three and a half minutes. Some of the things I would share are not typical hilarious fodder for nighttime talk show television. Uh, well, you're welcome to share one of those here if you want. <laughs> Actually, I do remember David, oh, I can't even say it. It's so gross. But I was 17. I remember him like pulling apart a brain of something Whoa. and putting it on the floor. And I was like, what is that? He's like, it's a brain. 
I was like, you mean like somebody made a face? No, it's a brain. You're supposed to step over it. It's got to be a brain. And it's, I still to this day don't know whose brain it is or what kind of brain. What a weird teenage life you had. <laughs> and Dennis Hopper's like, yeah, it's a brain. It's a brain. What? What? What's so weird about that? I'm like, really? Have you been with brains on every movie you've ever done? Because I've never seen a brain. He's like, I usually fry them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I won't ask you that question. And then I'll ask you this. Tell us something we don't know. And it can be about you. Or it can be an interesting fact about the world. My most embarrassing moment was I was 12 years old and my mother invited Scott Baio and his family over on New Year's Eve. And Scott Baio was the biggest heartthrob on television and in film at the time. Scott Baio, most, most people know him uh, from Happy Days, right? And then Joni Loves Chachi and Charles in Charge. Who didn't want Charles in Charge of them? And I had been in my first movie with him, which was called Foxes, and I was so excited he was coming over. And he sat down on a couch in a white leisure suit. It was the year of Saturday Night Fever. And, you know, he was beautiful, and I was 12. And he was a grown-up to me. He was probably 18 or something. And my dog um, passed him, and he was, like, cuddling her. And it was a very sweet moment, and I was so excited for him to meet my dog. And I realized that my dog is in heat. Uh Uh-oh. And has, like, an accident all over Scott Baio's pants. Whoa. And even worse, someone standing there is like, oh, you know what will get that out is club soda. And he was like, do you have any club soda? So suddenly, all I know is I was 12, and I proceeded to have to (laughs) clean it out. Oh, my God. Perrier. (laughs) So that is probably the most troubling thing that's ever happened to me that no one knew till this week. Enrico Enlighten's wonderful season two just wrapped last week. It is, of course, available on HBO Go. It's worth checking out. And season one is available on iTunes. That's great, but I'm still thinking about David Lynch playing with brains. (laughs) It is a crazy image. Right. I mean, we knew he did that metaphorically, but literally, he does it. (laughs) For real. Maybe they're going to open a cold case file from the mid-80s. That's true. He's under suspicion for many things. (laughs) Folks, uh, we don't play with brains here. We try to feed them. And you can learn more about us at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. British singer Tracy Thorne has recorded hits with her own band Everything But The Girl and in collaboration with acts like Massive Attack. Her new memoir covers her decades-long career in punk and pop, Today we overhear a tale about finding her voice. Hi, my name's Tracy Thorne, and for a long time I was the singer with a band called Everything But The Girl. I've just written a memoir, which is called Bedsit Disco Queen. Here's a story from the very early days when I'm still just a teenager living at home with my parents in Brookmans Park, a little village quite a long way, it seemed to me, from London. And I'm just dreaming about being in a band one day. So the phone rang at my home one evening and it was this boy I knew called Dave Foster. And he said, I hear you've got yourself a guitar. Yeah, that's right, I said. I'm thinking of forming a band with Jane Fox. Well, we could do with a second guitarist. Why don't you come over and rehearse with us? You know, we could just see how it sounds. Well, this was cool, I thought. I was being asked to join a band as the token girl. I liked the idea. So I kept quiet about the fact that I couldn't play yet. I was also clear in my mind that this was a good way to get a boyfriend who was in a band. Um, That was one of my current ambitions. Pretty soon, I started going out with Aid, the bass player. (laughs) 
But even that wasn't really the whole story. When it came to boys in bands, I didn't want just to go out with them. I wanted to be them. So there was a day when we'd all got together to rehearse in someone's bedroom and the singer hadn't turned up. And so the boys in the band turned to me and said, what about you, Trace? Can you sing? Well, could I sing, I thought? I had no idea. I'd sung a bit at school, but it was more that we got together at lunchtime in the music room and sang Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. But that still didn't mean I knew what I sounded like or whether or not I could sing. Being the rhythm guitarist in a band was easy. You could hide behind your guitar and behind whatever the lead guitarist was playing and you could hover at the back of the stage. I was kind of flattered that they'd asked me. At the same time, I was kind of intrigued by the idea, but I was just too embarrassed even to try as long as everyone was looking at me. So I made what was probably a fairly unique request. Um, I'll have a go, but I can't do it if you're all looking at me. Can I go inside the wardrobe and sing from there? The boys looked at me strangely. I imagine they were beginning to worry about the complete absence of any stage personality in this girl who'd just joined their band. But to their credit, they said, yes, okay, without killing themselves laughing. And so into the wardrobe I went. I sang David Bowie's Rebel Rebel. And when I came out, there was a very positive response. And they all declared that I sounded like Susie Sue, which I'd been trying very hard to do. I was quite pleased with myself, but I still wasn't sure I'd be able to do it in front of an audience, and we could hardly take the wardrobe around with us. And so at the very moment my eyes were open to the possibility of being a singer, I had a sense of disappointment, realising that I'd probably never be able to be like Susie or Patti Smith. I never thought I'd grow up so fast, so far. Because in many ways, I really did want it desperately. But I worried about why I was so ambivalent about the concept of attention both wanting and not wanting it at the same time. I've always thought that making music isn't really just about making music. You know, it's all about being heard and being listened to, taken seriously. Do you ever get me? It's about making other people notice you and listen to your version of events. And I think even then, I knew that I did want all this, but I seemed to want it in an invisible kind of way. I wanted to be heard without having to be heard or perhaps more specifically, without having to be looked at. Tracy Thorne, half of the band Everything But The Girl, reading from her new memoir, Bedsit Disco Queen. And you are listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media, which is also heard, but not seen. And now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, for years now, of course, there's been a craft cocktail trend. Oh, yeah. You know, top-shelf concoctions, they're painstakingly prepared to order. By a dude with a vest and an old-fashioned Western mustache. Inevitably. The mustache gives it flavor, the drink. Mm. But uh, there's a new drink trend creeping across the land. It's sort of the opposite cocktails on draft. Yeah, kind of like beer, right? That is correct. The pre-mixed cocktails, they're in barrels, they're poured from a tap. So this week I went to the Evely Bar and Restaurant in LA and I spoke to manager Jeremy Adler and bartender Kiwa Bryan. They mix their own Negroni cocktails there and they serve them on tap. So I started with the obvious question. Why? 
well, busy Saturday night, you're going to have the Barbie three deep and drink takes three, four minutes to make. How do you make a beautiful drink a little bit faster? That's interesting that you're admitting like straight up that it's, it's simply for convenience, but the whole kind of craft cocktail movement has been about waiting 20 minutes for, you know, the perfect freshly squeezed lime thing. Are we seeing that maybe peaking? Is this the is this the end of that? Well, you don't have to sacrifice quality at the convenience of making a drink a little bit faster. It's still, you know, top of the line. It's actually what's kind of cool about this is that you would think that the next day would something would change, the flavor would become muddled or muddy. I think it tastes better after a few days. It allows those flavors to come together. You know, like when you make a braise, the braise always tastes better the next day. Is it, so it's like a pasta sauce, seriously? Like a cocktail improves in the keg? I, I, th- I think the flavors marry together under pressure without oxygen and fuse together into one flavor. Now, but this, again, though, I have to say that kind of puts the lie to this idea of like, you know, you want your cocktail as fresh as possible. Is it just a different product or is it better? I think it's better. Um, I, there's a lot of preconceived notions about freshness, you know, like sushi is always better that day. Some fish taste better two or three days later. You know, th- this notion that you need to have something fresh, sometimes time is important. It's important for fermentation. It's important for braises. And I think this cocktail, it's also important for this one too. All right. Uh, by the way, why did you pick a Negroni specifically to be the one that you keg? Um, I mean, it's every bartender's classic favorite drink. Um, and blood oranges were in season when we put it on draft. And blood oranges and Campari are just like a match made in heaven. So it just seemed to make sense. For those who don't know, what's in a Negroni? A Negroni is a classic cocktail with uh, gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. And why is that the bartender's favorite? Campari. Campari is just the bitterness to it. It's just bartender's best friend. Why is that? I mean, just because it so instantly kind of transforms other flavors? I don't know. Bartenders just have a... I feel like... Our palates are love that bitter element. I do. It does have sort of a grown-up flavor to it. It's not like a mudslide for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when I was, you know, when I was 21 and I tasted Campari for the first time, I thought it, I thought it was terrible in an old man's drink. But now that's the only thing that's in my cabinet is Campari and sweet vermouth and every other spirit, so that I can make any variation on a Negroni I want. So what is the process for preparing this as opposed to, you know, say mixing it one at a time? We make it by adding a shrub to it and a, sh- and a shrub keeps for a long period of time. And a, a shrub, of course, is uh, kind of f- fermented vinegar, sugar kind of confection that's put in cocktails to make them sweet and sour. Is there, does that actually help the drink be kegged? Sugar and vinegar act as a natural preservative. So um, if you were to use a fresh fruit juice in a keg cocktail, it wouldn't stay fresh um, as long. Actually, originally a shrub was created to preserve fruit longer. Um, And also it has this nice uh, sweet and sour component. The acid that's in the vinegar just complements the bitterness of the drink really nicely. And it's like nature's BHT. That's nice. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the most natural preservative vinegar and sugar. What, how long actually will it preserve the cocktail? Like how long will it last in the keg without losing flavor? Probably it could go about two weeks, but it's been so popular that we've been going through uh, five gallons every four to five days. Let us, uh, can I try this thing? Definitely. All right, and it is, it's just, it looks like a beer tap here, although albeit a very nice sort of stainless steel one. It's weird because I've never seen something bright red come out of a bar tap before. Guests are always confused when they're, they're, you know, they think it's just beer coming out and they see something bright red. Then it's just like the mystique of, oh my God, what is coming out of that tap? And then everyone wants to try it. It's one of those things like you see, a guest sees one getting poured and then everybody in the room wants to try it. It's a little bit, it's a little bit vampire-y, which makes it sort of, you know, part of the zeitgeist right now. Well, absolutely. I mean, you weren't inspired by Twilight, were you? 
Um, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to sip this thing. Oh, and you've got a nice slice of blood orange in it as well. Here we go. That is lovely. We want it to be carbonated. Right now it's kind of frizzante. That's a, that's a great word. What does that mean? It's Italian for like just a little bubble. Uh, just, just a tiny bubble. A little bubble, yeah. Frizzante. I love that. It's like a beautiful word for something that didn't quite happen. Well, you know, it still tastes good. And Brendan, something else that is happening in some bars around the country? Yeah. We're hearing about bottling cocktails like soda pop. That is true. What is next? Maybe, maybe like a martini juice box. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. Actually, wait a minute. You know, if you tape a cocktail sword to the back beside the straw? We are going to be millionaires. All right, people. We're going to take a minute to mock up a prototype. Quickly. But coming up, musician Billy Bragg answers your etiquette questions when the Dinner Party Download continues. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and welcome back to the Dinner Party Download. Give us an hour, and we'll give you all the info you need to win your next dinner party. Coming up, South by Southwest founder Louis Black tells us what to expect when you work for one of the biggest arts festivals on the planet. If you start crying, that's okay. Everybody starts crying. But first, it's time to learn some etiquette. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Billy Bragg. His mix of pop, folk, punk, and protest music has won him a loyal following since the 80s. It's also won him a Grammy. Yes. Here's a clip from Handyman Blues off his new album, Tooth and Nail. A screwdriver business just gets me confused. It takes me half an hour to change your views. When I flick the switch, the light's all blue, I'm not. Now, you've said the inspiration for this album came from a fan's tweet in which they coined a nickname for you. Mm. You want to tell us what that was? Yeah, it was a woman talking about um, overcoming a breakup by listening to Billy Bragg. He's the Sherpa of heartbreak. <laughs> the and Sherpa I, of, of heartbreak. heartbreak. So perfect. Uh, I, like, I just like the idea of my songs helping people, you know, doing the heavy emotional lifting yeah. for people. You are known for your progressive politics and your political songs, but yes, you, you also have Greetings to the New Brunette, yeah. all these great classic love songs. Yeah, people kind of like think of me as, as a political songwriter, and I, of course I do write political songs, but really, you know, I write as many love songs, oh, yeah. if not more. And, and, and while I don't mind being called a political songwriter, right, it really annoys me when people just dismiss me as, a, you know, politics is just part of the show. That's yeah. true. And I think I, I would say that your, uh, your fans, actually, many of them are drawn to you by your love songs, and then they stick around for the politics. Yeah. You know, even people who are into politics need a bit of emotional <laughs> heavy lifting every now and then. You know, Surprising. It's not, I'm often yeah. saying to people, you know, it's not either or. Life isn't all politics. Well, How boring would it be if it was? My favorite is when you combine the two, uh, like in one of your songs, you sing, we're trapped in an ideological cuddle. That's right, the ideological cuddle, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's, the, they are the best ones. I mean, I have another song called I Keep Faith, which is a song about you and your commitment to your partner, or it's about my faith in the audience's ability to make a difference, depending on how I pitch it. Well, listen, your audience has made a difference in this show because uh, they've sent in questions for you to answer. Yeah. And the first one is from Warbler. Okay. I love to sing along to music, even if I get some lyrics wrong. I consider it high praise to the song. I'm digging the music. Who cares if I make unintentional revisions? My sister seems to think I'm dissing the song and artist, though. If I can't sing it right, don't sing it. Thoughts? Well, Warbler, I think you're you're getting to the very core of the creative urge there. Mm. It's by... 
filling in the gaps yourself of your own imagination. You're adding to things. I know that people have come to me with, with lyrics that they've heard. Misheard? Totally misheard. And they get, sometimes they're disappointed when I tell them it's not the right line, but the line they had is better. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Do you ever see there's, there's a song I have called Richard, which at the end of it I shout, here comes Richard, and somebody heard that as in a country church, which is a, a, nice, a nicer end to the song because it mentions wow. marriage in the song. Yeah. And yeah. Um, an interesting thing to do if you're in the music industry is to get the uh, Japanese lyric sheet from your album and get some Japanese people to translate the lyrics into English for you. <laughs> the line, the milkman of human kindness in... Japanese had become the delivery man of human love. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which was nice. So I, I think warblers get into the very essence of songwriting. The, the way to learn to write songs is to take your favorite song, maybe even keep the chorus, yeah. and write new lyrics. I've been ripping you off for years. <laughs> it's, sure. it's feel free. You did that feel with, free. You did that with Beethoven. You wrote uh, new lyrics to Ode to Joy. I've done it with I've done it with Bob Dylan. You know, I, had a, I have a song called Ideology that is basically using the framework of a song called The Chimes of Freedom. Huh. I was, I was actually here in New York City, come, someone came to me and said, you're not going to believe this, Billy, but Bruce Springsteen has stolen your song, Ideology, and he's calling it The Chimes of Freedom. <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, we need to have a little chat, mate. Stuff it's a circular house. thing. Well, you come from a tradition, the Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan. Yeah. I mean, everyone was borrowing from classics. Yeah, that's what folk so music is. But I think Warbler, what Warbler's doing is he's engaging his brain in that creative yeah. process. So, Warbler, there you go. Now you have an answer for your sister. Absolutely, and if you do it right, maybe Billy will rip off your lyrics and put them in his song. All right, so we have a, another question. This one comes from John in Burbank. John writes, I couldn't be more opposed ideologically to some of my relatives, so politics are a surefire conversation killer. As a result, we end up falling into banal chit-chat about the weather, sports, etc. What's a safe but stimulating third way? Well... Mm. I mean, this may be a, a, a British thing, but... Um, pornography. Don't talk. It's, it's funny you should say pornography, Rico, because I was just about to say the second most popular search on the internet is genealogy, uh, is family uh, uh. history. And you Americans are pretty good on family history because so many of you are, you know, mm. two or three generation immigrants. You actually know quite a lot about your own personal history in a way that we Brits have been the same. I mean, that you look at Richard III, he's been under a car park in Leicester for... <laughs> 500 years. That's right. They just got <laughs> a skeleton. Yeah. And, uh, there's uh, much to talk about. Exactly. So engaging them in, in conversations about, the, you know, about family history, your parents and your grandparents, they know a lot of esoteric stuff yeah. about whereabouts exactly was it in Central Europe that great-great-grandma came yeah, from. Yeah, you're like, you know that CVS yeah, in yeah, Budapest? It's yeah. underneath that drugstore. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that, it's that sort of thing that, you, you know, that parents often want to talk about anyway. All this stuff is really easy to find on the internet now, unless your name's Smith. Yeah. In which case, just discuss religion. Always a safe topic. Yeah. Here is a letter from Kelly in Chicago. Kelly writes, uh, The only moment of socializing that gives me anxiety is looking over the menu at a dinner date. Either I dutifully keep the conversation going and never get to take a good look at the menu, or I get lost in reading the menu and feel like dull company. Any advice on a middle ground? I think most uh, restaurants these days have their menu online, Kelly. I'd check it out before you go. <laughs> Just make notes. <laughs> or go to one of those um, Asian restaurants where they just have little pictures. Yeah. And you just, in the end, you've got to stay engaged with the person, I think. And this is America. I mean, my experience, particularly in New York, you can never imagine what it's going to look like when it comes. You order something you think is going to be relatively easy to eat, and then something comes out of the kitchen that's like three foot tall and on fire, and you think, please don't let that be what I've ordered. Oh, my heavens. You're like, here comes my oatmeal. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, my, a sandwich in the, in the UK, uh, I could make a sign by putting my hand horizontal like that. Yeah. That's, a, that's a UK sandwich. Yeah. You put that in your mouth. Yeah. An American sandwich is like a fist. It's like, it's impossible. Dripping with so you. So I carry a mallet with me in America to get the sandwiches. <laughs> to flatten it down. Get them flat so I can get my teeth around them. There you go. Kelly, there you go. If you... There's your answer. Err on the side of engagement and uh, bring a sandwich hammer. Oh, I think that's just for English people because remember we oh. have uh, we have uh, socialized medicine teeth. All right. This is our last question that we ask of uh, all our etiquette guests. It is, what is the most memorable get-together you have ever been to? Who, what, where, details, please. Oh, I once went to somebody's house and there was a wonderful collection of people there. Among them was Joey Ramone. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't only memorable for that, but it was also memorable for the first time um, I encountered Trivial Pursuit. You Whoa. play Trivial Pursuit with Joey Ramone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with Joey Ramone. How'd he do? And the problem was, of course, probably among the first few times I came to America, so it would have been 84, 85. Oh, it was the um, American edition? It was the American edition. Tough. I, Tough for I you. Was really, it was Tough. really, really difficult. So in order to try and hold back Joey and keep him from you know, totally whitewashing me, yeah. I started making up the questions. Oh, <laughs> really? And, yeah, I really did. And, they yeah, didn't and he catch didn't me. notice? No, no. I, the fi- I started putting English questions that I knew he wouldn't get. And eventually the final one that gave it away was I asked who played the lead in the Lassie movies. And, and how did that expose your ruse? Lassie never wore a lead. That's what you said the answer was. Uh, and that's when he asked to look at the card, and that, uh, that, that totally, totally blew it then. What was wrong you with know, Risk? You know, that's, yeah, well, that's probably I, was, I would play Risk if I, if I met The Clash, maybe. Or, I, you know, me and the Smiths might play, I think. Man, invite us over. I thought Marcy was an Uno man. Uh, Billy Bragg, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you. Shirley, sexual politics has left me all over my Billy Bragg, his new album Tooth and Nail comes out March 19th, and he'll be on tour to support it too. Polite of him to be so supportive. He's a supportive guy. You know, speaking of which, ladies and gentlemen, if you have questions about how to behave admirably or just about what the lyrics to the chorus of Blinded by the Light actually are, think about it. Send them to us via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Or via our hotline, aka the phone in my cubicle, it's 213 621 3554. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert on a dinner party-worthy topic. This week, the topic, how to create one of the world's biggest arts and culture festivals. And our teacher is Lewis Black. He co-founded the alternative newspaper, The Austin Chronicle. But more germane to this conversation, he also co-founded the South by Southwest Festival, the 26th, I believe, of which kicks off in Austin, Texas this week. Is that right? The 26th? I think it's actually the 27th. Man. And this it started as kind of a festival for the music industry where sort of professionals would go and see all these bands at venues around the city. You have since added film and interactive media festivals. They all happen around the same time as the music festival. How many attendees are you expecting to show up for the three festivals this year? You know, it's in the tens of thousands. It's over 2,000 acts coming. So that's, you know, 10,000 people. There's filmmakers, there's registrants, and then there's a lot of people who just come for the films or the music. It's estimated at over 100,000 to 200,000. So you're significantly adding to the population for a few weeks. Now, this this is not how things started back in 1987. 
Tell us the scale of the thing that first year. So the original idea was just to have this small regional gathering. And much to our amazement, 700 people showed up in 200 bands. 700 people. 700 people. Do you, do you remember the moment? Like, So this was a pretty DIY sort of thing at first. Do you remember the moment where you thought, okay, this is getting bigger than me and my friends can put together anymore? There's not one moment where I suddenly realized that this thing's a monster. There's many, many, many moments. What's the most frightening? The second year, we had Joe Ely playing in a ballroom at a hotel, and and we really didn't have sufficient security to keep kind of people from coming into the ballroom. Mm. And the stage was low, so people were standing on chairs, climbing up on each other's shoulders, and it was packed. And we began to realize that potentially this could be a very dangerous situation. Yeah, right. And so you, you had Roland and I standing on the stairs up to the ballroom together, hold, like holding hands, trying to keep people from coming up, <laughs> both semi-hysterical, trying to control the crowd. And that was it was one of those moments when we realized, this, oh, this is bigger than us. What do you attribute the success to? Like, what made this festival, as opposed to any other music industry festival, just suddenly blow up? Austin, Texas. Is this the this, location? You know, when we started this, and in the decade, 15 years after we first did it, 150, 200 other cities did it. We did it in three or four other cities, and it ne- didn't work for anybody. And one of the reasons I've come to realize is Austin had more, let's say, cult bands, bands that could play in Scandinavia or in the Midwest or the East Coast and attract a real devoted crowd, but they weren't, uh, you know, Huge. top 10 bands or top 40 bands. And most other places either had, you know, AACs, yeah. no, major cities, or acts nobody had ever heard of. Friends of ours do a similar event in Toronto. And when they started, they were friends with all the biggest Canadian bands. Um, Rush. Blue Rodeo, uh, Rush. Um, uh, that's um, it, right? I think that's all of them. No, Tragically Hip. <laughs> Tragically Hip is the biggest course, Canadian band. Of course. You can't believe how popular they are in Canada. I can believe it. And they were friends with all those and Cowboy Junkies. None of those bands could play a little club or, or even a reasonable size club without causing a riot. That said, though, this festival now pretty much engulfs Austin for about a week and a half. I mean, there are ancillary parties that happen all over the city. Traffic patterns change. I'm sure the local cab companies must like double their staff that week. I imagine that it might be scary to pull this thing off at this point. There's so many variables that could go wrong and so many people depending on you to get it right. You know, my role has changed over the years to where I'm not as involved in day-to-day planning as I used to be, so I'm not as strung out or as tense or as messed up as I used to be. But <laughs> but Roland, who's my partner, who is the, the, the hands-on daily manager, he gets stiffer and stiffer. Roland's really good at repressing things. He always seems very calm. But I just noticed that he walks stiffer and stiffer as the the event gets closer. <laughs> we have set, we start in the beginning of February with Saturday meetings with, the, with like yeah. 150, 200 people. So we can go over all this information together. And one of the things that will come up several times at each of these meetings is if you start crying, that's okay. Everybody starts <laughs> crying. You know, just don't get too hysterical about it. And try and go off where you need to go and cry and then it'll be all right. I have, a, I have to ask you, just about every band ever has played South by at some point And in some cases, way before they were stars. I want to know what's the band that you managed to catch when they were nobodies who then blew up. Is there one that stands out? You know, there there isn't one that stands out. The the show that stands out to my mind is Johnny Cash when he launched his comeback recording on American and he came and he played with the Tennessee Three, although there were two at the time. Oh, yeah. And and then did, you know, half a set of old material and half a set of new material and emos, which is just a small little club. You know, that certainly, you know, is one of those moments that that I remember catching. I don't really recall, you know, some band that I knew nothing about that blew me away, mostly because 
One of the other things we say at these Saturday meetings is, remember, South by Southwest is not for you. You know, you're not here to enjoy it. You're here to make sure everybody else enjoys it. Which is maybe one of the reasons why it succeeds, because you guys don't actually have any fun. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's oh, no, I mean, we, we, and sometimes like they'll give a list of all these great shows, and they'll go, and remember, you can't go. One last question to you. Sure. I've been to South by several times. It often coincides with St. Patrick's Day. Whose genius idea was that? Why would you do that to yourself? Oversight. We didn't start this. Th- I think we started as a two or three day event. I don't think we ever expected it to expand into a ten day event. And oh, so uh, it just grew into St. Patrick's Day. So basically. it just and then we tried to move St. Patrick's Day. We didn't think that was too unreasonable. <laughs> no, I, you know it, it. It gets a little out of hand. Every night yeah. is so intense, and there's so much going on. As you said, there's parties in every direction for miles. But uh, St. Patrick's ups the ante where the ante can't be up. Now listen, everybody from noon far, if you want to know who we are, we're the Texas Playboys from the Lone Star State. Oh, no. He was black. He co-founded the South by Southwest Festival, which is held each March, and that is, of course, when this episode was originally broadcast. Yes, please do not go to Austin this week expecting to find crazy rock and roll parties everywhere. Yes, or St. Patrick's Day festivities. Not going to happen. In July. And that concludes this encore presentation of the Dinner Party Download. Finito. Next week, we'll be back with an all-new episode. Till then, you can keep up with us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of the Dinner Party Download. Peter Clowney is executive producer. Our interns are James Delahousie, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Engineering help came courtesy of Robbie Carmen and Jeff Peters. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. If the British rock group Electric Light Orchestra had a grandchild, chances are it would sound like Big Black Delta, Mm. the solo musical project from musician Jonathan Bates. He just wrapped up a U.S. tour, but if you missed it, you can console yourself with this track from his latest album. It's called Side of the Road. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending our dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. See you next week. All right. Hey, llama, don't we lay the groove. Gonna braid your hair. Don't betray the mood. Excuse, is that supposed to be Led Zeppelin? No, it's my song. Uh, okay, because it sounds like you don't know the lyrics to Led Zeppelin. <sighs> to me. Radio host who doesn't understand art. His name rhymes with Biko and he thinks he's smart. That's also wrong.